0: And welcome, everybody, to the EM Over Easy podcast. I'm Andy Little here, joined by my co-hosts, Drew and Tanner. We're doing this digitally. Good morning. Good morning. And we have got a great guest with us today, somebody that I'm sure many of you have maybe seen on Twitter or other social media platforms with her awesome story, Aileen. Aileen, thanks so much for hopping on.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: I was going to say your last name, but Uh I am a butcherer of last names.
1: (laughs) It's it's Gregosian.
0: Yeah, that wasn't going to happen. I appreciate you clarifying (laughs) it for me. You should hear him say his own last name. It's so awkward when he messes up a little. I don't I don't know how it happens. But we, we wanted to bring you on because, of course, your story is pretty awesome. Uh, you, you run a blog now called A Change of Heart launched to this last winter. It kind of tells a pretty awesome story that I think a lot of us can relate to from the fact of being an emergency medicine provider, but also be really kind of inspired by by the way that you've handled this kind of crisis in your life. Okay. Uh, but to kind of go over you before we get to that, you're an, a West Coaster or as Mm -hmm. Tanner calls them, you're a best coaster. And you currently train in Philadelphia at Drexel Emergency Medicine, and Mm -hmm. you've been out this way for about three years, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Where did you go to undergrad?
1: I went to undergrad at UCLA. Um, I got a master's degree at USC. I did medical school in Tennessee. So I've I've been like all around. And now I'm doing um, residency in Philadelphia, and I'll be doing fellowship next year in New York.
0: You're bracing the East Coast. That's good for yeah, you. Actually,
1: I love the East Coast. And somebody said, you can always from now on say that you left your heart on the East Coast. And I'm like, yeah, that's actually true.
0: So let's kind of so kind of recap for those that maybe haven't heard your story. Our listeners mm-hmm. might not be on all the other platforms that you're on. So kind of start back and what happened in December of 2018?
1: Sure. So a few, I want to say like month and a half, two months before I actually went to the emergency room, I had a cough for a couple of months. People asked me if I had any other symptoms, and when I look back, I would say maybe I was like a little more tired than usual. I'm used to always being like really energetic. I don't even need coffee. I can be up, and then like I need like four hours of sleep, and I'm fine. Those couple of months, I like I was drinking a lot more soda and like Red Bull. And I just, I, I was napping more and it just was unusual for me. So other than the cough and the, the fatigue, I didn't really have any other symptoms. The cough got worse. It was around mid-December. It got, it got a little bit worse. And I also started getting short of breath. And I was in the ICU as an ICU resident when my own attending noticed it uh, before I did. She said, did you notice that when you're trying to talk, you're actually like stopping in between sentences to catch your breath? And because I had never been short of breath before, I didn't know what it felt like obviously, but it also, it was just like very strange that she was telling me and it made me very scared. Um, I promised her that I would get a chest x-ray. So I called my doctor. I tried to get a primary care appointment, but this was right before Christmas. And so a lot of like the offices were closed. I think like I ended up maybe trying to get one in for January, but then over like the next few days, things started getting even worse and worse and worse. And on a Friday, it was December 21st, I believe, it was a Friday, like toward right before Christmas, I ended up just going to my own emergency department because everything had just gotten so much worse. I actually couldn't even say like a whole, I couldn't maybe say a whole sentence without coughing or being short of breath. And then I was just coughing the whole day. I went to the emergency room, and mind you, a lot of my co-residents, I think like two of them had the flu, one of them had a pneumonia, and so I didn't really think much of it. I thought at worst it was a pneumonia that I would need some antibiotics for. I went to the emergency room. I obviously refused everything. I didn't let them get like a troponin. I didn't let them get a VBG. I didn't let them get like barely any blood work. And then I just wanted a chest X-ray, and I wanted to get out of there. Like I had to work the next day. So my own attending, so you know my own attending from residency – ordered a chest x-ray for me and he came in. He's like, you know, it looks kind of funky. Like I had pleural effusions. It looked like a possible multifocal pneumonia. It just, it just looked really bad. And then he said, he's like, your heart rate is in the 140s. You're breathing in the 40s. You know, you don't look good. Something is definitely wrong. And so he convinced me to stay. I did not want to stay, and I, but I still like didn't want anything done for me. I ended up getting admitted. I went upstairs pretty quickly, and by then we were treating, we were kind of like unsure, but we were treating possibly a pneumonia, possibly something else. I got some antibiotics, and then luckily I actually went to the emergency room that night because... When I was on the floor, so I was just on like the general medical floor, I ended up decompensating pretty quickly. I want to say it was in the middle of the night. I remember I got up and I was feeling like really nauseous and dizzy and I got really sweaty and cold. And I looked up at my monitor and I noticed that my heart rate, which was like in the 140s this whole time, was down to like the 50s, the 40s. And then my boyfriend, who's an orthopedic surgeon, he was with me. And he caught up and he's called one of the nurses he's like, there needs to be rapid response right now. He um, might not
0: know much as an orthopedic <laughs> surgeon, but he knows that a heart rate of 40 is bad.
1: Yeah. And he, he actually said he's like, I've called rapid responses on people worse than this, <laughs> or better than this. <laughs> and I was like, wow, yeah. Yeah. he's like, he's like, this is not good. And so we made a joke of that. But he ended up getting one of the nurses, And I don't remember it much else after this point. I do remember that So keep in mind that I was at the hospital that I, you know, one of the hospitals that we train at. So I knew all of the, the IM residents and the surgical residents, and they all came to my rapid response. And I remember seeing some of their faces. I couldn't remember what was being said. There was like ringing in my ears. I do remember one thing that was said was they were trying to put the pacer pads on me. And the last thing I do remember was, should we just turn this into a code? And, you know, I think my heart rate was like down in the 20s at that point. And that was like the worst thing to hear ever, and and I I don't remember anything else. I did ask one of my internal medicine friends who was there, and it's funny because nobody really wants to talk about that night. But I got one of them to talk to tell me I was like, what happened? Like, what was I doing? I'm so interested in like what all happened that night. And she said she's like, we came in, she's like, we could barely feel a pulse on you. You looked blue, and the last thing you said was, please don't let me die tonight. And that just like gives me chills. Like every time I say that part, but she just recently told me that.
2: Oh my gosh.
1: Um, yeah, yeah, and and I don't remember saying, she's like, you just became altered after that. I think they ended up getting a gas and like my, my lactate was like nine. My bicarb was like three or something like that. And they they ended up drawing labs. I think my LFTs were in the thousands at that point. I was I had like shock liver and everything. I went up to the unit. I'm, I got intubated at some point before or after that. And then I woke up like a day and a half later in the unit. So I don't know what happened to me at this point. Long story short, it was really difficult to figure out what was going on, especially because, you know, I was a young, healthy, like, athletic female before all of this. I want to say, I mean, people keep asking me, like, when the last time was that I worked out before that, epi- like, before going to the ER? And I want to say, like, maybe, like, a week or two before that, I remember I was, like, jogging. Of course, I didn't feel that great, but I just thought it was, like, a cold that I had. And so no, no none of us were thinking heart failure, but I ended up that I had Heart failure. I was in cardiogenic shock, secondary to heart failure from something called familial dilated cardiomyopathy, that I had no idea that I had. It was my so my dad has it, but his was never attributed to being something genetic because we didn't know his dad's history. And then when I when I was diagnosed with it, we realized that his dad had died of the same thing. Like it just took we just like never put two and two together. Um, it's a long story behind that, but we just didn't know our family history that well. So I went to the cath lab when they realized it was my heart. And I remember like the, the cardiologist who came in the, the fellow who came in to do my own echo at that point before, you know, we we're trying to figure out what was going on. And so they, they had ordered like one of the official echoes on me and he came in and, you know, he put the probe on my chest and we both looked and I was like, oh God, like, I know what that is. That's, that's a terrible looking heart. And he just got like pale. And he's one of my, if any, like he's one of my best friends from LA. Like, so I know this guy for years. And so he just like walks out and he comes back with his attending. And they both like take me to the cath lab at that point. And my cardiac index was like 1.2. Um, and yeah, normal is like above 2.2. You know, you should closer to five is better. But yeah, they put me on on Moronone, And then I had to get transferred just because my hospital didn't have uh, advanced heart failure therapy. So I got transferred to the University of Pennsylvania, which happens to be like a great heart transplant place. And initially, we were trying to see if just medications were going to help. But at one point, I mean, even when I was on the milrinone, I was on like other inotropes, things were just not looking good. So at some days, like, I, you know, my cardiac index would be closer to two, but then other days, it would just crash again. And then basically, the last thing that I was going to get before, you know, they, they at that point, they were like, you probably need to be on the transplant list. And I got listed, I got listed as a pretty much, um, pretty much on top of the list. So, you know, they told me, you know, I probably have to wait sometime between days, weeks, months. We're not really sure. You know, we don't know when it's going to happen. But but if things got worse, then the next thing was for me to get a balloon pump or um, an Impella. Luckily, like I remember that night, one of the attendings came in and she said that I probably was going to need a balloon pump that night. And I remember I was like, listen, I was like, can we just wait one more day? And if I don't get it by tomorrow, I'll get the balloon pump. I just didn't want to be like bed bound. And, and looking back, I probably should have gotten the balloon pump. But... Luckily, within the next 24 hours, I happened to get uh, the heart. And so I got a heart transplant. I was, I was in the hospital for only nine days after, which is pretty good. Usually you stay about two to four weeks post-transplant. But I left on, on post-op day nine. I got home and, and here I am now.
2: The story is so incredible. Like just listening to you kind of give a, a brief synopsis there. My heart rate, I was watching my watch. They went from like resting heart rate, normal, like 60s up to like high 90s, low 100s, just because I can, I'm so like nervous listening to your story.
1: Looking back, I mean, I feel like I'm more nervous saying the story now than I was back then. But I think like when you're in the ICU, I mean, your mind is somewhere else. Like you're not, I don't know. I, you, like I don't remember a lot of what happened to me. I don't you know, you're just like, you're not thinking correctly. And like, there's so much going on around you. So I feel like I'm more nervous saying it now than I was back then.
3: (laughs) So let's fast forward a little bit. You you, you do an incredible job talking about your experience in your blog and a couple other interviews you've done recently, but Mm -hmm. more uh, recent development was you getting a letter from the donor family. And I know there's only certain things you can talk about uh, I, on a podcast like this regarding what's in the letter and the the family it came from or the, the patient it came from. But we want to hear a little bit about you, how how you felt opening that letter, just receiving the letter, and how that has changed your experience since receiving it.
1: Sure. So I will say a lot of people always ask me, like, did you write the donor? So the way it works here, at least in Pennsylvania, is everything is up to the donor's family. So if they want to contact you, if they don't want to contact you, if they want a letter from you, if they don't, everything is up to them. What I did about a month after my transplant was I wrote them, just, you know, thanking them and all that. Till this day, I don't know if they got it just because it's not up to me. But I did receive a letter from them in the beginning of May. And I remember one of the social workers at UPenn called me and she said, we have the letter here. I can scan it for you and you can get it right now. Or I can just like physically mail you the copy. And my best friend was visiting that weekend. And I knew I was like, I kind of wanted to be alone when I opened it just because I knew it was going to be crazy emotional. And I just wanted to like, I wanted that moment to myself. So I told her that I just wanted her to mail it. So I had to wait a few days. And every day I was like checking the mailbox like three times a day just to see if it was there. And I, it was like on a Friday, I think in the beginning of May. And I opened my mailbox and I saw the letter. And I remember I even like tore it open, like before I got in the elevator to my, to my apartment, but I didn't like take it out. And I got to my room and I was like, wait, like I should just sit down for a second. Cause this is going to be crazy. I knew that I was really thankful for all this. And I know the importance, you know, I knew the importance of, of it, the organ donor saved my life. Right. Like that's literally what, what she did, but putting like a face and a story just made it even more kind of, it just made it more surreal. It made the experience, it personalized everything, obviously. So I was really shaky, right? And it it takes a lot for me to cry. And it takes a lot for me to like get nervous about something. But I remember I was like really shaky right before it. And I didn't tell anybody that I had it. So I opened it and and then I read it. And basically, I think it took like two days of me crying for me to get like fully, to fully understand everything. And like, so yeah, that that was, that was how I opened it.
3: Before we get to the letter itself, tell mm-hmm. me, Yeah, I, I can only imagine how impactful that moment is, but- were you, was it excitement? Was it nervousness? Was, what, what was the emotion that you were actually feeling as you held that letter in your hand, ripping it open, running up the stairs, and then finally sitting down and, and reading it? I certainly appreciate the want to have a the physical letter. I think that makes sense. I right. felt the same way when you just said that. I said, no, you got to have the physical letter. Tell me you didn't get a scanned email. I, yeah,
1: I, no, no, I, no. <laughs> so I was really excited to open it. I was nervous, and but I was excited in, in a good way. I, I wanted to know everything. But I felt very differently after I read it. So after, you know, after I, I read it, it, there were so many feelings in, in one in that moment. So not only did I feel thankful, but I felt bad about what had happened to her. Not only like did I feel like happy to like move on with my life because I had like this great new heart, but I felt bad that she had to, you know, she didn't have her life to to live. So it was just a very strange mix of emotions afterwards. And that's basically how I felt the whole weekend after.
0: Yeah, that idea that because you were alive, she wasn't, I can imagine, probably weighed heavy on on you for a, I mean, I'm sure to this day probably is something that you'll think about at milestones.
1: Oh, from absolutely. Here on out. Yeah. Absolutely.
0: What else can you
3: tell us about the letter? Even if you can't go into details of the letter mm-hmm. itself, how has it impacted you going forward beyond just the the gravity of having that letter? Have you Maybe being able to incorporate some aspects of this person into who you are now or, you know, I, <laughs> yeah, I, beyond, yeah. beyond, a, beyond a physical heart, obviously.
1: So I'll say a couple of things. So she was a lot younger than me. Um, she was finishing up school. She had a lot of goals. She was in the healthcare field. And we had a lot of the same interests, like a lot. Uh, it's it's re- reading it. I mean, right now I'm looking at it, and I'm like, oh my god, I can't. Like we had so many of the same interests, and I even said, I think it was in one of my blog posts. I told somebody once. I said, like we could have been friends. Like that's how cl- like we were so similar in so many ways. And and yeah moving forward there there are a couple of things like I can't say obviously, but there are a couple of things that I started doing with my life that she liked doing, but yeah, that's just for me, you know, that's, that's more of a me thing that I wanted to, to continue for her.
2: I think that's really neat to kind of have that as an homage to her and, yeah, yeah. And, and the unfortunate circumstances that led to you guys meeting in this way, but
1: right, right.
2: I love like my favorite, one of my favorite lines I've read that you've written is on the last day of your life, on the first day of my life, on the worst day of your life, on the best day of my life.
1: That's the day we met. Yep.
2: It is absolutely so powerful. That statement.
1: That's that, I mean, it's the truth, right? Like it, that, like that day for me, the day that I got the heart transplant was the best day of my life. I mean, that's the day I realized I was going to like live. Right. And little did I, like at that time, especially, I didn't really think much about the other, you know, the person on the other side of this. And, but, but thinking about it, like that's the day that they're going to be mourning their, you know, their daughter's fiance's death. So it's like, it's, it's weird. It's very, very strange that we, that same, it's the same day.
0: So when you think about this going forward, mm-hmm. how does, you know, because we know your life path before this happened. You were going to finish mm-hmm. residency, you were into your critical care fellowship, mm-hmm. listen to some of the episodes, that's still your goals. But how has, you know, this event, this—I mean, this really awful, uh, wonderful thing—you because know, it's really right, it's awful right. and wonderful at the right. same time—how has this changed your outlook for the plan that you had prior to this happening?
1: So I still want to. So like my career goals are pretty much similar. If anything, I want to do everything even more like passionately, if that, if that helps, like, it's very interesting because people think that I wanted to go into critical care after all this. I'm like, no, 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 that's the ironic part of it. Like, this is what I wanted to do with my life. Like, and I had matched, I don't know, maybe like three weeks before all this happened. So, you know, I I was, I was going to be doing all this anyway. and And I told my program director, my critical care medicine program director, I said, it's weird because I feel like I already got a fellowship in critical care just by going through all this <laughs> for two weeks. <laughs> like I've had everything done to me I know I know so much about like cardiac critical care it's insane I could probably like you know but so those have stayed the same but I think I have like a newfound I feel like we always knew you know especially in emergency medicine I don't know what it's like uh, where you practice but here whenever a patient expires in the ER in the ICU there's a whole thing we have to do we never know if a patient's an organ donor or not but we have to call gift of life and they kind of see if the patient is an organ donor and then they talk to the family and do all that so that's something that that the physicians have to do here in Pennsylvania. And I'm used to doing that. So I'm used to being on the other side and I know how important it is. Um, But this kind of gave it more of um, like a personal meaning for all that. And I know how, now I know like how, how important it is on another level almost. And I think the other way it's going to impact like what I do is in general, I'm going to be more empathetic with my patients, especially the critically ill ones. And not to say that you have to be go through all this to become a good physician, but I think it'll just give me a new perspective on all that. So my life goals have stayed the same, but I think like there's a few new things added to it.
3: Absolutely. And not that we would ever wish what you've been through on on anybody. But...
1: Exactly. Yeah. I always make sure to say that. I'm like, I don't want this to ever happen to anybody, but <laughs> at least I can take something away from it.
3: And and every physician really changes and it almost has to go through that growth of experiencing something themselves or with a loved one to mm-hmm. finish their training. I, I don't think we're a complete physician until we've experienced something like you've experienced, hopefully not to the extent of the level that you have, but right, that's an right. incredible point that you make. How much longer till you make it back into the emergency
1: department? I can't see patients for a few more months just because I'm still on steroids. Once I get off the steroids, I'll just be, it's weird to say. So right now I'm like hyper immunocompromised, immunocompromised, I'm sorry. But if I, like once I'm off the steroids, I'll, I'll be just regular immunocompromised. So then I can make it back to the ER, but I'll have to just be very careful. So I have to wear like a, like a mask at all times and, and do all that. But before I go back to see patients, I'll be able to go back and do more administrative things and do my like admin block, my research block. I'm really interested in academics and research. So me and my program director, we're trying to figure out how we can incorporate that into the first couple of months of going back
3: get residency started again for you
0: after uh yeah
1: i'm really i'm so excited to go back i mean i was always the type of like i really love what i do and i know a lot of people say that but like I I love being a resident. Like I love being in the ER. I have so much energy there. And, but, but so you can only imagine someone like me staying at home and being quarantined. It's like the worst thing. I want to go back so badly, so badly. It's it's insane. I don't let any of the residents complain to me anymore. I'm like, no, please don't. I want to do anything to be in your place. I want to see patients.
0: I would love to be yelled at by internal medicine about right now.
1: I actually told my internal medicine friends that they can never yell at me again. I said, I think I can get any consult and any, Admission without anything, so please just.
0: Residents are no longer going to pick up the old ladies that can't walk now because you're going to be back at work, probably. We've already kind of talked about the experience, but I think there's two key phrases that I'm sure you heard mm-hmm. um, during this whole process, and the one is is that you might not make it to a transplant,
1: mm-hmm. and then
0: the second one was um, you ha- we got you a heart or a heart happened
1: right right what
0: but those are two very different sediments with very different emotions, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. So how was it swinging on both sides of that pendulum in that 24 hour period?
1: I don't know how many people or how many people listening to this have had near death experiences. So so there's a few parts to this, right? Like there's that first rapid response that happened to me where I was like, okay, I'm like, I, I'm going to die. Like that, that was in my head. I think like, I I didn't think I'd even make it out of the hospital. I remember I would ask my the cardiology fellow, I'd be like, what are the chances I'm going to get out of here alive? And you know, and we'd make like dry jokes about it, and all that but but I remember being scared generally that that first week when we weren't really sure what was going on, or we weren't sure what i need what what i needed and and for management and all that, and then there was that when I was deteriorating like with the the inotropes right so so then, especially like the couple days before I got the transplant when they were like, "You know you don't look at i remember I don't know if there's a Twitter post that I had about it, but I remember. The cardiology attending came in and she said, "You do not look good, and all your numbers look terrible." And I was like, "Oh, it's because I'm on my period." Like, she's like, "Well, you're hypoxic. I don't think has to do." <laughs> I remember I was like in denial, but but I was so sick, and so I remember that night I was like there were, there were times where I would cry or right? I remember like my boyfriend, Matt would be there with me or my other friends would be there and I'd be like, Oh my God, like this is unreal. Like what if I don't make it till the morning? And like every morning waking up was like, yes, I'm alive today. Can you imagine? Like that's, that was my goal of the day was just to stay alive. And of course, but there were the better days where I was doing fine and, you know, walking around and all that. But the the, the couple of days before when I was crashing, um, obviously I, f- I felt scared um, I was very anxious and, and I was very sad at times, but then the day that I, that I got the call, it was like the exact opposite feeling. Like, of course I was scared for the open heart surgery itself, but I don't think that even hit me until I got to the OR because when I got the call for the heart, I was ecstatic. I mean, like I was like, Oh, I get to live. I get to live again. That's amazing. And and there's two ways people look at that transplant. So I talked to people my age. Um, there's a girl who is like in her 30s right now. And she was telling me that she's going to be listed for a heart transplant. She's so upset about it. And I said, listen, like you can look at the heart transplant. She, she she has like a cardiomyopathy as well, but she's lived with it for about five years. And I said, listen, you could look at it as, as like – the end right you can look at it as the worst thing could ha- happen to you but I never saw it as that I really like I did not see it as that. I saw it as a second chance to life I thought it was amazing that I was getting a heart and so I think your mindset really changes the way you feel right and so when I got the call I was ecstatic I was happy and and I never thought of a heart transplant as like a disability basically
2: you you kind of brought up a, a really interesting thought real quick why did you choose blogging specifically about mm-hmm.
1: this? So I was writing a lot when I was in the hospital. I remember I said, like, I don't, I didn't remember much. I mean, there's, I remember like 50%, 75% of what happened to me, but there's a lot of things that I don't remember. And so I was writing a lot when I was in the hospital. And so a lot of my blog posts, I had to, like, grab from what I had written. Um, And so I I tend to write a lot just because, you know, that's a way to process feelings. I've been to therapy before. I used to be a mental health worker, so I know that it's important. So I I did that at the hospital, and then (laughs) – Initially, like, because people were like, you're so open about it. I'm like, yeah, but imagine getting 150 texts a day from people asking how you're doing. Like, I'd rather just put it all on one platform so that people, like, stop asking me how I'm doing. Um, and so, initially, like, the blog started out as me just trying to putting everything out there for, you know, my friends, family, or I would put stuff on Instagram for that reason, just because if I wasn't getting to their texts on time or whatever. And then I didn't even think it would get that big. I'm so happy it did, but I just thought it would be like, oh, my Drexel like resident co-residents, and maybe UPenn would see it, and you know, I didn't think it would get this big, but it did. And so, so when I when it first when I first started it, it was just more for like putting things out there to for people to see what I was going through and then I I used it as a way to like express myself and then finally like I started using it to like add things to organ transplant resources heart transplant resources and all that. So it started out as me just trying to put out put everything out there and then um ended up just being something wilder. It was crazy, but I'm I'm happy that it got big. I'm glad people are using it.
2: It sounds like you have almost transitioned into a way to help other people who are going through the similar you know occurrence of my life may end soon if I don't get an organ right right. Has that been interesting to talk to other people and their stories? Oh, it's been
1: so interesting. I mean, if you also knew me, I guess you might be able to, but I'm like super extroverted. I love meeting people. I have no, like, I'm like very open about everything. And so I don't know if that also like helped, like maybe I'm more approachable. I'm not sure, but there's so many people who email me. I mean, I think I get like 20 or 30 emails a day, at least at this point of people from all around the world who like who who message me, email me. Now I'm like, I talk to this girl from Lithuania um on WhatsApp all the time. She she's she's also she's 31, she's my age, and she's on the the a list to get a heart transplant. But over there it's a little bit more difficult. It takes a little bit longer. And so pretty much daily we message each other. She asks me um like questions about what the meds are gonna be like and all this. And then I so I've connected with people like on a this is weird to say but global basis I guess. Um, and then, but also it's even more interesting people like around me that I've connected with, I've connected with people in Philadelphia and then even more interesting than that, I've connected with other physicians with transplants. Um, like I, like, you know, I met this like, uh, internal medicine guy who had a heart transplant, like a couple years ago, I met like other, so, so there's so many more physicians with transplants than I thought. I think I've met maybe 10 so far. And and they're all messaging me like, you were so open about it. It makes me feel so good. Like, I went through the same exact thing as you. And I was like, well, should I not be open about it? <laughs> Am I doing something wrong? <laughs> but, but I'm glad it's helping others, including physicians and non-physicians.
0: One thing we talk a lot about a lot on our show is the idea that we get to where we are because of circumstances, but also because we have a great support team. And I think mm-hmm. one thing that I've really loved reading your blog is you talk a lot about the people that were there for you. Yeah. And what what do you have to say to those people?
1: Oh, my God. Thank you so much. There were times where I was a complete, I was so rude, but I I blame everything on the medications, including like the solumedrol, prednisone, milrinone, I've, I've gone everything. I was like, if I was mean to you during my hospitalization, I'm so sorry. But without them, I wouldn't be here. I know it sounds cliche, but but I, I always like to say, I was like, milrinone might have been my like support, but I think my real, real support were the people around me. I mean... If it, it's so important having that every day, I probably had like the nurses remember this if they're listening to this. But I think there were at least five to fifteen people in my room at all times, and I don't even know if that was allowed. But they just wouldn't leave, and like there'd be like parties there all the time. I remember I spent New Year's Eve. I had just gone out of the cath lab, and I and I came to my room, and there were like ten of my co residents there and, and my friends. And they spent the whole New Year's Eve with me, like up until like midnight, which was great. And I was like, you guys could be out partying or doing something, but they didn't want to be. So it meant a lot for me at the, you know, there were times where I needed to be alone, but for the most part, it was amazing having them. And I couldn't, I mean, I don't even, I don't even know how I could thank them, but, but thank you so much to everybody, including, you know, my colleagues and my friends and my family.
3: You know, this is such an incredible story that you're sharing and I the passion that you clearly have for sharing it and trying to make your experience better others is is truly incredible. So thank you so much for joining us. Uh, we're gonna end it here for now, but would love to have you back in a couple months once you make it back in the emergency department. and oh,
1: sure, yeah, check awesome. in
3: and get an update on how you're doing. and I think that's gonna be a whole nother experience <laughs> to talk about too that we we can share from there. So again, thank you so much for joining us. We're gonna post a bunch of links to other resources where we can hear more about your story and certainly follow your blog, which is so incredibly moving. And we look forward to hearing more from you and the great places you're going from here.
1: Thank you. Thank you for having me.